Well, this week I'm joined by Daniel and historian Tom Holland. Tom wrote a book called Dominion, which came out a couple of years ago, and since then he's been on a lot of Christian and apologetics podcasts and blogs, uh, talking about Christianity and talking about its influence, um, especially on the West and how we think and process and who we are as people, actually. Um, And yeah, it's been really interesting seeing Tom talk to a variety of people about Christianity and why it's, um, it's true in some ways and false in others. So I had to have Tom come on the podcast and to push into this a little bit more with him, to understand um, why he doesn't fully commit to Christianity um, and to understand what Christianity is and isn't in his mind. And yeah, this is a fantastic conversation. It's one of the best that we've had for sure so far on the podcast. So um, yeah, I hope you're strapped in. I hope you're ready. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy the roller coaster that is Tom Holland. Cheers. Welcome to When Belief Dies, a podcast honestly reflecting on faith, religion, and life. This podcast is all about listening. We want people to share their reasons for faith or their reasons for non-belief so that we can better understand what has or has not convinced somebody of the claims that different religions profess. This is a journey, it's not a destination. And I'm really excited to have you listening with us each week as we delve into different viewpoints from different parts of the world to try and uncover the truth. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam, and today I'm joined by Daniel. Daniel, it's great to have you back. Indeed, great to be back, Sam. And this week, uh, delighted to say we're also joined by historian Tom Holland. Tom, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Tom, um, you've um, been involved in many conversations um, about Christianity ever since um, your book began to uh, come out, uh, the book Dominion, uh, which I've read and thoroughly enjoyed and have found uh, very challenging, actually, um, to kind of how embedded Christianity is within all of our minds and mindsets, especially in the West. Um, so we're going to jump into that in, in, in due course, but I thought it'd be really helpful, Tom, um, for those one or two listeners who, who don't know who you are, um, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a quick overview of you and your work, Tom. Uh, yes, so um, <clears throat> I'm a historian. Uh, I write for the general public. Um, my main focus has always been on um, classical and early medieval history. So the first book I wrote was uh, called Rubicon. It was about the um, decline and fall of the Roman Republic, um, and then followed with a, a sequel, a Dynasty, about the, the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Um, I've also written about the Persian Wars, I've written about the origins of Islam, I've written about Europe in the 10th and 11th century. And my most recent book, as you um, mentioned, is called Dominion. And um, the uh, the British subtitle is a slightly enigmatic one. Um, it's uh, um, The Making of the Western Mind. Um, the American one, which is altogether more gung-ho, is uh, how the Christian Revolution changed the world, which in a way perhaps gives a better sense as to what it's all about. Um, so uh, that's that's um, basically where I am. And if I'm sounding distracted, it's because I've suddenly realised that I have not turned off my mail or my messages. So that's what I'm just doing now. Um, so uh, apologies for slight distraction there. I am now once again all yours. 
No worries. Thank you for that, Tom. That's um, yeah, that's that's really cool. And I think um, I mean, one of the conversations I I, I wanted to have was really um, have you have you noticed that you've been kind of um, approached by people like me and and Christians uh, much more since since Dominions come out? I've been approached a lot more by Christians, a lot more by Christians, um, which is kind of interesting because I uh, I, I wasn't sure which groups would be more interested, uh, which, which groups would, would have more disagreements. Um, you know, I was aware that the thesis basically is that um, we, are, we are all in the West so saturated in Christian assumptions that uh, it's almost impossible to escape it, that in a sense we're, we're goldfish swimming in Christian waters. Um, and I guess I didn't know, you know, <laughs> who would welcome that thesis and who would find it provocative. But I think by and large, Christians have tended to welcome it. and. Um, I guess what would you say? Uh, atheists, secularists, humanists have have tended to be less enthusiastic about it. Yeah, I, f- I find it really interesting. I mean, I've been um, I've been I've been following you for a while. I know that you were kind of had that that conversation with um, AC Grayling on on uh, yeah. the on the Unbelievable podcast, and um, and you've spoken to people like um, like NT Wright, Tom Wright, who I know that you're um, you're actually um, pretty good friends with, from what I can tell. And you'll be talking with him um, at the Unbelievable conference, I believe, as well um, mm-hmm. in in the near future. And are you I just friends would be would be uh, I would not presume to describe myself as that, but he is. You know, I mean, he, he's one of the most eminent scholars on Paul's letters that you can imagine. And um, the very first time I met him was to go on a podcast talking about Paul's letters. So it was kind of like the most terrifying viber <laughs> imaginable. But he's a man of, of um, great generosity as well as of learning. Um, and, you know, Paul's letters, it's, a, it's, it's an enormous, enormous topic. And actually, when I was writing Dominion, um, you know, there's, it, it covers two and a half thousand years. And I spent quite a lot of time on it. But I spent, I should think, eight months solid on Paul. Uh, and in the end, there's about, I think, kind of about 6,000 word chapter. So I don't think I've ever studied anything quite as intently for so few words. Um, but, uh, you know, it was great to have someone like Tom Wright read it and uh, reassure me that I hadn't got it completely wrong. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, he's, he's he's he seems like a great guy. I am um, I've I, I email exchanged him a, a, a little bit, and hopefully he'll be on the podcast in a few months' time, which would be great. But um, yeah, he seems like a very a very just loving person, which I think is fantastic. Um, anyway, enough about NT Wright. We can we can move on. Um, so I thought what what be really interesting. Um, I think um, we're going to kind of get into 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 the history side of it. Um, I know Daniel's got a lot of questions lined up um, around that, but what I would love to kind of get your take on because I know we've already mentioned how you've been um, approached by Christians um, a, a, a fair amount uh, since Dominion's come out. Um, I wanted to get your your understanding on that topic itself because it, it it kind of feels from where i am on my journey kind of like trying to work out what's what's true and what's not true within the whole religious sphere of of basically christianity um whether or not um christians are almost um, betraying you as somebody who is like almost a christian in terms of somebody who almost believes in you know the resurrected jesus that you can have a personal relationship with him and that you know um we're, we're, we're kind of called to be god's people here on earth and that's that's a true narrative from from god essentially um and from what i can tell from your book tom and from the sorts of things that you say um, on, on, on your podcast as well and, and and other writings you've done um you seem to kind of be talking about christianity more in a sort of um a a, a way of life that has come about due to some historical events that seem to have propagated out throughout history um do, do you have any kind of reflections on that sort of um narrative well perhaps the easiest way to answer that is to say why i came to write this book 
because if you'd asked me, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, would I end up writing a book on Christianity? I wouldn't, because um, to be honest, I had a, a kind of almost synesthetic sense of Christianity as the equivalent of, you know, autumnal drizzle um, coming along and blotting out the clear blue skies of the classical world. Um, you know, that, that you know, the, my kind of childish sense of it was, um, people in blinding white togas sitting on, you know, in temples with gold everywhere, like a kind of Asterix cartoon. And then, and then late antiquity, all the monks turn up and ruin it and the, the, the blue sky turns to grey cloud, um, which of course is, a, I think is, is, is quite a kind of powerful myth and is probably one that kind of lurked in the back of my mind. So my interest was always very much focused on Greece and Rome and I was very happy to think of myself as preeminently, um, you know, shaped by the legacy of the classical world, albeit mediated through the Christian Middle Ages. Um, but I, I, I also knew, I think, simultaneously that that wasn't right and that um, essentially the kind of the Christian inheritance was something that at some point I was going to have to engage with if I was properly going to understand what the relationship of the present to the pre-Christian past was. And this was a sense that was massively enhanced for me by the process of actually sitting down and, and writing about, say, you know, Caesar or Leonidas, um, trying to get inside the heads of these people and realising how they were vastly more alien and distant and remote and frightening than I had kind of fully appreciated because really it's only when you really uh, try and articulate and frame your relationship with the sources that you, you, you properly come to a kind of understanding like that. Um, and essentially, I think what really clarified it for me was the sense that that English itself was a treacherous medium with which to try and bring these distant people to life, that there were just too many words that um, were so saturated in Christian assumptions and had had been shaped by the weathering effects of, of such a kind of long stretch of uh, kind of Christian monopolization. Um, that it was almost impossible to use English without anachronism, that to use words like religion, secular, science, homosexuality, uh, even democracy, and apply it to the pre-Christian world was kind of the equivalent of saying that Julius Caesar conquered France. Kind of right, but, but, but there was a terrible sense of anachronism about it. And so the more I thought about this, the more I thought, well, you know, I, I really need to, to, to kind of see if, see if this is right. And it was sharpened for me by an exchange that I had after I'd written a book called In the Shadow of the Sword, which was about the origins of Islam. It was about, essentially, it was a book about the uses that empires in late antiquity used monotheism. Um, and, and the obvious way in which part of the appeal for emperors and kings in late antiquity of monotheism was the idea that, that if you have a single god who is ruling the cosmos, then the emperor or the shah or the caliph can serve as his deputy. Um, and that was basically, I wanted to look at the way in which um, 
early Islam was an inheritor state to the Roman and the Persian empires in the way that, say, the Frankish kings or um, you know the Ostrogothic kings in uh, in Western Europe were clearly the heirs of, of of the Roman world that they had planted their kingdoms amid, and that of course I I, I embarked on that project with the assumption that uh, God had not spoken to Muhammad and that the Quran was not a divine revelation, and the problem was that the only coherent narrative we have for explaining how the Quran came to into existence is the Muslim one. Um, and therefore, if you're going to write a kind of narrative history in which you situate this uh, in a coherent narrative, you have to come up with an alternative explanation. And it can't be one that Muslims are going to accept. Um, and that then involves kind of looking at the way that the sources for early Islam are um, often kind of two centuries after Muhammad lived. Uh, and therefore, the likelihood that the stories that Muslims tell and believe about the beginnings of Islam are kind of back projections, that they tell you an awful lot about what, what Muslims in, say, the uh, early ninth century thought. They didn't tell you much about what's going on in, in, uh, in the Near East in the early seventh century. Um, and it was quite a controversial book. I mean, I was basically articulating what is quite the kind of scholarly mainstream, but it hasn't been presented in, to a kind of popular audience in quite that way. And I made a television documentary about it as well. Um, and I remember a Muslim in the audience saying, why have you done this? You know, you wouldn't do this about your own beliefs. And my beliefs were essentially kind of secular, agnostic, you know, liberal, humanist, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I'd already basically come to doubt them. I, I, I was basically, you know, rather like you've lost your Christian faith. I was coming to lose my liberal faith. I was coming to think that the myths that I'd believed in weren't true. Um, and so in a sense, I, I wanted to do to my liberal beliefs what, what I'd done with, with, with Muslim beliefs in, in the shadow of the sword. So dominion essentially is that. Dominion is, is an attempt to, to stress test what I think, what I believe, the assumptions I have, the perspectives that I, I, I have on the world, uh, and indeed more generally, the West, people in the West generally have. Where do they get their ideas from? Where do they get their conceptualizations from? When they use certain words, what, what exactly do they mean by them? And why do they mean what they, what, 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 what they mean? Um, and see how far back I could trace these and see if it would go back beyond the, the Enlightenment. And if it did go back beyond the Enlightenment, then how far back would it go? Um, and would it lead me to Greece? Would it lead me to Rome? Would it lead me to Persia? Would it lead me to um, the Hebrew Bible? Uh, would it lead me, to what extent would it lead me to Christianity specifically? Um, and uh, Dominion is the fruit of that. said um and yeah I, there's so many tangents that i could run down with this but I, i'd really like to just hone in on um on 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 christianity especially and um i mean i'm i'm actually quite um uh quite um kind to your positions in like i kind of um, feel like christianity is very much uh, something that is Im imbued within our culture and, and our mindsets and our morals and our values and all those sorts of things and that's uh, uh, something i know da daniel wants to speak about in, in a few minutes but um what i'd really like to get from you tom um is 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 what 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 is the sort of kind of um final stage then because um i think a lot of christians start off with the uh, viewpoint that obviously jesus um was god incarnate in some form um and then uh, this person died and rose again and that was the kind of 
of acceptance for our sins. It's the very obviously obviously you're, you're you're very aware of this having grown up in the church yourself, I believe. But um, um, I kind of want to ask you. Obviously, we 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 can say that the 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 these threads have began from this movement who believe that this person rose from the dead. Um, but do you have any kind of beliefs or views on this person actually kind of um obviously Jesus we believe was a historical figure. I'm very happy to also agree agree with that and that he was crucified. Um, but where where do you kind of land when it comes to this idea that this person was God and that he died and rose from the dead? Like, what is is it is do, do you hold a belief in that now, or is that something you that you question still? Like, how does that kind of rhyme with? Obviously, Christianity is very powerful and has influenced lots, but that's that's the central movement within within the Christian story. So, what what are your thoughts on it? Um, well, uh, essentially, I've you know I, I said I'm a liberal who's lost his faith. The reason I say that is that I I I, I think that the things that I believe the idea that, that that human all human beings have an inherent dignity they 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 have an inherent equality that human beings have rights you know the idea of human rights these are myths i mean they're not true uh if i believe in them i'm making a leap of faith and the truth is i want to carry on believing them because i, I don't want to live in a world where i don't believe that um so in a sense um you know i Intellectually, I don't believe it, but emotionally, I I do. I do continue to believe it, um, and I, there is a kind of comfort in in, in belief um, because I, you know, I don't want to go the full Nietzsche, basically. Um, now, on top of that, the fruit of having spent uh, as long as I've spent studying Christian history and engaging with um, thinkers and visionaries and um, martyrs, uh, people who have, have lived and breathed and, and died this remarkable myth and interpreted it in, in, in an astonishing variety of ways and have, you know, it's been humbling experience. And I feel ashamed of my kind of Dawkins-esque youthful contempt for all this uh, and the truth is that realizing that i believe in myths i find the, the 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 christian myth you know and by christian myth i mean the full panoply of the resurrection and angels and you know all the the moses and elijah going up in a chariot and all that kind of stuff i find it incredibly powerful and, and if I'm going to believe in um, uh, human rights, I'd quite like to believe, you know, might as well hang for a, a, a sheep as a lamb. I mean, and so I, I guess that I am open to feeling a kind of sense of communion with the myth when and as I can. So maybe at Christmas maybe at Easter, maybe if I'm, you know, in one of those thin places that people talk about where the supernatural appears. I mean, I don't really believe in the supernatural, but I would very much like to, and I've always been fascinated by the supernatural. And to be honest, one of the reasons why, why my Christian faith faded very early on was that I found the Greek gods, for instance, much more sexy and charismatic and appealing. Um, and I'm just right now writing about, uh, I'm beginning a book on um, the heyday of the Roman Empire, and I'm writing about 
uh, Nero and the aftermath of the Great Fire and the um, the palpable sense of the, the desire that Nero had to um, appease kind of infernal spirits and the, the rituals that he went through, which isn't normally associated with Nero, but it's kind of incredible, incredible sense of power of it. And as I write it, I feel the power of this desire to negotiate with supernatural forces. Um, now, of course, I don't, you know, I absolutely don't believe in the supernatural forces that Nero was negotiating with, but I feel the power of it. And, and because Christianity has been so influential and so seismic, and because, you know, my mother believes it, it's important to her, uh, it, it that, that therefore it matters to me as well. And because the values and the beliefs, you know, the, the, the belief in universalism, the belief in human rights, the belief in the dignity of human beings, because that comes from Christianity, therefore, in a sense, it's, it's, it's more in tune than, say, I don't know, Dionysus or Zeus rushing around raping people and everything. Um, so, you know, that's, that, that, that may seem a kind of wishy-washy answer, but the truth is that, that I... I'm open to wearing a multiplicity of hats on this. There are times where I look at the the, the infinitude of space and think, you know, <laughs> or, or particularly dinosaurs. I was a, a, a dinosaur obsessed child. And that also for me was, a, I kind of had a precocious Victorian style crisis of faith. I remember there was a, a, an illustrated Bible in Sunday school where Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden with a brachiosaur. And I remember asking the Sunday school teacher, you know, there were no human beings with dinosaurs, what's going on here? And being unsatisfied with the answer I had. So that's also, you know, I, so so there are all kinds of ways, there are times where I just think it's absolutely impossible. But then again, there are other times where I think, okay, I'm, I'm gonna open myself up to this. And I guess actually the, the, um, the, uh, the, the, the two writers who I found most helpful with this, one of them is in the book and that's Origen, the great church father who is, is, is the man who, you know, he's, he, he, lives in Alexandria and Alexandria is often described as a melting pot of, of Jews and um, uh, and Greeks but it wasn't a melting pot uh, they lived very separate lives and what's interesting about Origen is that he is schooled in Greek philosophy he is taught by a Hebrew by a Jewish teacher so he genuinely is someone who, who, who blends these two traditions and in a sense Christian theology emerges as a fusion of the Greek and, and, and the Jewish um, and he I found in that kind of very moving his 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 attempt to make sense of this dual inheritance of Greek philosophy and Hebrew scripture and he has this wonderful image of scripture as being a great room sorry, a great mansion full of many rooms each containing different keys and you have to go around to find the keys in kind of different rooms before you can match them up and it's like something Borges I, I'm sure Borges probably read it I mean it's that it's that kind of quality so so I, I, I you know and he famously comes up with the, the way in which scripture is to be understood on many different levels and I like that. I don't. I. I really flinch from kind of hard and fast. This is what you must believe, and if you don't, you're wrong. The the the, the possibility that that this exists on the dimension of metaphor or symbolism or allegory or whatever. That's. I really like that, and I found that incredibly liberating. Um, the other the other um, writer who who does on occasion help me to you know kind of blow on the the kind of otherwise dead embers of of actual faith is R.S. Thomas the um, very bizarre <laughs> um, Welsh vicar 
who whose poems I just find amazing because he seems to have, I mean, the extent to which he he he, he was plagued by doubt. I, I mean, he had a kind of I think a surface he had a surface face faith then underneath that he had doubt and then beneath that he had a kind of really wild mad strange faith and if 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 there's going to be faith and i want it to be mad and strange and wild i hate uh, the idea that there's anything remotely obvious or rational or safe about any of these beliefs you know they're mad and wild and they should be a little bit frightening and you get that from Thomas's poetry I think. <laughs> yeah no that's so that's so refreshing to hear Tom I think um I, I, I'm, I'm definitely chiming with, 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 with a lot of this. I think, um, um, for instance, I'm, I'm reading a book at the moment um, about the resurrection, um, and it's written by a Christian, and it's very engaging, and they're basically looking at the sort of evidences that we have, and you know, how far um, back can we get to, to the people kind of witnessing Jesus's death and resurrection and stuff. Um, and I think um, one of the things that I've noticed is there seems to be. Um, um, this isn't, I'm not trying to go Christianity or anything like that, but I'm just trying to just be obvious with what I see. I see a lot of um, Christian historians or scholars looking at the resurrection and kind of piecing it together and kind of explaining why it coherently makes sense. And then I see a lot of kind of maybe um, secular or atheist or just kind of, they don't really have a position um, looking at the kind of the, the evidence for the resurrection that we have presented in the Bible and from the, the kind of shoots of Christianity that, that come out of that, 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 that early first century. Um, and, you know, they don't seem to kind of land in a fixed position of the resurrection definitely happened and it sounds like you're kind of um, in that position but I kind of wanted just to get and this is the last little bit about the resurrection then I promise we can move on um, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on on that this 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 idea that we don't see um, secular historians of any sort coming to the evidence and finding that they have a belief once again because of the evidence of the resurrection they might have a hope that it's true and they might have a desire to live in the narrative but there doesn't seem to be an evidence-based historian coming to a full-fledged kind of Christ is is God moment because because of the evidence. Have you got any kind of thoughts on that? Well, because the disciplines of history and apologetics are very different. Um, with apologetics, you have, you know, you're, you're, you're putting the cart of what you want to believe ahead of the horse of what the evidence is. And that's clearly true of Christians. I mean, that's notoriously true of Christians. It's true of Muslims as well. Um, I mean, it's true of everyone who, who believes something that is kind of unverifiable and, and, you know, the whole point of the supernatural is it's supernatural. Uh, <laughs> that's the point of it. Um, but I would say also that um, the, the, the converse is true of, of kind of radical atheists who are very keen to prove that Jesus and Muhammad didn't exist. And likewise, we'll go to ludicrous extremes to demonstrate that, you know, I mean, they'll say there's absolutely no evidence that Jesus existed at all, or Muhammad existed at all. And that's likewise exactly the same. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we'll come on to this, but I, I, I think that, it, that, that when Christians, Christian atheists are doing that. That's exactly what they are. They're very Christian. Um, I think that that kind of evangelical atheism, the the sense that atheism is liberating, that it, um, you know, the toppling of idols, the banishing of superstition, the bringing of people who've walked in darkness into light, the sense that this will set you free. I mean, this is this is kind of a logical endpoint to Protestantism. 
Yeah, that's it. I heard you say that in an interview and instantly I, I recognized that in myself, especially in the early days of losing my faith. It did, I mean, as a Christian, I'd been, you know, dismissing all these other, you know, false gods and false beliefs, even sometimes of other Christians, you know, who weren't weren't sticking to the true God. And it was like my atheist self just turned up and said, oh, you've missed a bit. Are you, um, you Protestant or Catholic? Uh, I was Protestant, yeah. Um, so, so in Scotland, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that tradition of godly idol smashing goes back a long way. <laughs> it was it was pretty strong. It was pretty strong. And the, the detail I loved about that was, was that um, in the Scottish Reformation, you know, they didn't just close down the monasteries like they did in England. They went the whole hog and literally pulled up flowers from monastic flower beds. I mean, that was a kind of commitment to, uh, you know, to, to godly reform that, um, well, it's, as it were, put down deep roots. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and of course, uh, John Knox was uh, quite the firebrand himself. So it definitely, yeah. it definitely feels strong. And I did really respect that sort of insight that, yeah, it is sort of this next logical progression uh, to take it just that one step further. Um, certainly rung true for me in my personal journey, as well as this sort of overarching narrative that you sort of um, sketch out. I guess one thing which I'd be really curious to get your thoughts on is uh, the emergence of science. Uh, and the scientific method. And it'd be really helpful just to get sort of an overview of how you feel that sort of this interaction of Christianity sort of brought about this, this scientific method. Because obviously in sort of modern circles, um, obviously, as you say, the, the dinosaurs and how does evolution fit in with Genesis is such a big um, battleground. And yet it seems like from your position, you're sort of arguing actually science sort of has its root even in Christianity itself. Well, to use the word science very precisely, I'd say that's a classic example of what I meant when I said that um, you've got to look at, at what words mean and how they've evolved over time very carefully. Because, um, you know, beginning in the late 19th century, the notion that um, there is something called science and it's it's kind of uncontroversial. It's just something that's always existed. So you you know you can talk about Greek science or Babylonian science or Chinese science or Arab science or whatever that everyone's had science, um, and that likewise there's always been something called religion. And that again the word religion is uncomplicated. So you can talk about you know again Greek religion or Roman religion or whatever. And um, the notion that's very popular in the late nineteenth century that um, science and religion have always been in conflict. So um, obviously uh, this is in the context of um, Darwinism. And I guess, you know, the paradigmatic illustration of that is the, the debate between Wilberforce and Huxley. Um, but before that, it gets back projected onto um, Galileo um, and the Library of Alexandria uh, and um, the idea that, um, uh, you know, the Greeks had science and um, they were stopped by monks and they burned down the Library of Alexandria and stopped science. And that's why we, you know, otherwise we'd have built steam engines and we'd be an Alpha Centauri. And this is the evils of the Dark Ages and everything, which is all kind of um, basically a, a kind of atheist 
anti-popery. And what it's doing is drawing on Protestant anti-Catholic tropes. So that's the significance of Galileo in this, is that the whole story of Galileo, which is, is you know, vastly more complicated than, than the kind of um, atheist demonology would have it. But basically the, the image of Galileo as a kind of a, a brave man standing up for truth and being persecuted by the evil inquisition is a, a Protestant myth. It's it's Protestant propaganda. It's bred of the Thirty Years' War in England. It's it, you know it's hugely influenced by people like Milton, who you know is 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 a massively committed Protestant. That's where it's coming from. And and likewise the um, the idea that you know monks are inherently superstitious, uh, get rushing around trying to destroy ancient literature and burning down libraries and smashing things this this is this is a kind of protestant myth um and it's one that that has passed seamlessly from overt self-conscious practicing protestants into their natural heirs who are people like ac grayling or you know, i mean he's, he's he's all over this and it's not true and he is is as uninterested in the historical truth the historical reality of what he believes as any theist he doesn't want to engage with what the historical evidence actually tells him. He doesn't want to think of the, the stories that he's recycling as being a basically a kind of series of Protestant tropes. Um, and I don't personally see why he would feel threatened you know, by acknowledging that he is culturally Christian. I mean, it, 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 it seems, you know, if, if you're an enthusiast and believer for the idea of evolution, if you, if you accept the truth of evolution, it doesn't seem such a leap as to accept that, that, that it's true as well in the dimension of culture as in, 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 in biology. That if you can accept that you're an ape, you know, descended from apes, then surely you can accept that you are essentially Christian and descended from Christians. I mean, if it's not true, it doesn't matter. It's just acknowledging a kind of basic cultural fact. But he, he he's all over, oh no, I owe nothing to Christianity. It all comes from Aristotle or, you know, Confucianism or something. I mean, it's ludicrous. I want to take a minute of your time to talk about supporting When Belief Dies. This will always be an advertisement-free podcast, and for that reason, I hope you will be willing to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe to the podcast in your favourite podcast app, and check us out over on YouTube. Finally, I want to ask you to consider supporting the show financially. You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal. Everything that you give goes directly towards running and improving the blog and podcast. Take a look in the description for all the links, and thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's episode. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And uh, I guess, you know, for me personally, I've always had a bit of skepticism over how we talk about history. And I think the, the main reason for that is there's sort of a big difference between the Scottish education system and the English education system in regards to the British Empire, where it seems like the English education system sort of um, 
gets a bit nervous talking about the empire and in particular the slave trade that went around that um and and doesn't uh and sort of talks about the british empire as overall still being quite good but still doesn't really engage with some I, of those I, things. I think this is also a myth um right okay. i know of no teachers or university teachers who in any way <laughs> thing. um I mean, right. that's been true in the 1950s, but I don't think it's been true since the 60s. Okay. Well, um, you know, just just to give my perspective, even in, in Scotland, we were obviously taught about the atrocities of it, um, but there was still this sort of sentiment that it wasn't us, that it was very much, a, you know, the, for us, the terms British and English were synonymous. Um, and it was quite a revelation for me, sort of entering into my 20s and sort of having to re-engage with that and this narrative this myth of scotland being the freedom fighters and being the people who stood up for the oppressed and not necessarily actually engaging with some of our complicity um in the empire uh, back well, in the I've, day I've, um, I've just done a a, a podcast uh, which is going on thursday on the seven years war ah, okay where, um the highlanders <laughs> <laughs> first stepped onto the stage of imperial history um and were being hailed in the house of commons as the um as 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 the finest soldiers in britain so um there is a reason why uh, at the independence day parades in um in new delhi um they all play bagpipes <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the english who were playing the bagpipes <laughs> well I, I mean i would love to talk about that topic for for quite a while but um just i guess just to bring us back sort of how do you make sure that in your work you know you're sort of challenging a lot of these uh, contemporary myths that are sort of developing that are trying to write out Christianity of this story. How do you then come up at that so that you're not just rewriting um, a new myth? Uh, how do you make sure that this story that you're now creating isn't a sort of a, a your own back projection uh, going back? I, I, I can't escape myths. We all, mm. none of us can. Uh, it would be ludicrous of me to pretend that I can step outside this and affect a position of kind of omniscient neutrality. I, I can't. And basically, the, the position that I've come to, the reason I've written Dominion, the reason I've become interested in this, is a recognition that I was not living in the myth that I had thought I was living in. That essentially, the and, and I think you, you were absolutely right to, to fix on stories, because I think that that, that ultimately is how and why Christianity has been so profoundly successful. It, it, it's not through the teachings. It's not even through the rituals. It's through the stories and it's the power of those stories. And, you know, you're talking about the British Empire and you're assuming that it's somehow wrong to have a powerful empire. Why are you assuming that? Wasn't at all evident to Caesar. Not at all. You know, why do we assume this? And the reason I think, I mean, I think there is an element from classical history. I think we do have the kind of the, the image of, of, um, of Athens and Sparta seeing off the Persian invasion. I think that, you know, the Isles of Greece, the Byronic image of the Greeks seeing off the Oriental despotism. I think that is historically, that has played a part in the European tradition of anti-imperialism. But I think that that shrinks in comparison with the influence of the Bible, because the key thing about the Bible is that um, certainly the Old Testament 
is written by people who essentially were lying on a beach having massive great hunks come along and kick sand in their face at regular intervals. So the, 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 the Israelites, the people of Judah, are constantly being you know, knocked around by the Egyptians, by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians. And so these great empires are, are cast in a very, very negative light in the Bible. And of course, the most powerful story that illustrates this is the story of Exodus. You know, God is on the side of the slaves. Pharaoh and all his chariots are drowned by the sea. Empire is humbled. It's the slaves who are the favourites of God. And that's an incredibly radical idea. And that idea is one that has dominated kind of anti-imperial um, narratives, right the way up to you know, the most obvious recent example being Martin Luther King, for whom who, who, whose narrative, whose, whose kind of civil rights movement is the model that Black Lives Matter and everything that derives from that's absolutely rooted in the narrative of of exodus but of course it is an expression of the complexity of this biblical heritage that what happens when the children of israel leave egypt and they leave the desert they end up crossing the river jordan going into um the promised land and <laughs> nicking it because god's given it to them and that also of course has then provided justification for imperialism it's it, it it's there in the back of the minds of of um you know the, the pilgrim fathers going and and the, the africanas going to south africa and so on so 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 the the inheritance is incredibly contested but to go on with that i think that the specific christian spin is that jesus is put to death by the apparatus of the greatest power of the day the central image of christianity is an emblem of roman imperial torture and Probably the most effective, enduring and influential piece of anti-imperial propaganda ever written is the book of Revelation, with its absolutely stunning portrayal of Rome as the whore of Babylon and fed and watered by the ships that bear gold across the city and this kind of incredible understanding that that to humble the whore of Babylon, you must cut off the trade routes. I mean, it's an amazingly sophisticated understanding. And, you know, the image of the cross and the image, the kind of grotesque images from Book of, from, from Revelation have shadowed every European imperial venture. And they continue to to this day and they explain why it is taken for granted by people today that imperialism is a wrong. That's not a given. I mean, that's unusual. It's unusual to think that empire is bad. Yeah, that's 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 really, really quite insightful. And yeah, the way that you've you've pulled that apart, I guess one question that I do have and I, I, I think it would just be interesting to just see sort of overall what i you know fully respecting as you've just said like you're you're embracing the fact that this is part of your thinking uh, and that it's impossible to escape that and i think that's really uh, important for you to have um but i guess what's the extent of your claims here is it that you know just that christianity was helpful in developing some of these ideas or is it that it's essential you know i guess uh, the difficulty is I think it's essential. essential. Uh, so I've given the metaphor of, of the with goldfish 
in these mm. waters. I, I, but another one that struck me when I finished the Minions, I didn't put it in the book, was I watched Chernobyl. I don't know if you saw the three-part series, drama series. And there's there's a um, there's a sequence where two of the characters are right up close to the reactor, and they can literally see the radiation leaking because it's ionizing the air. So it's kind of visual; you can see it. But of course, the um, the impact of the Chernobyl leak is that that cloud of radiation drifts northwards and and reaches Kiev and reaches Scandinavia and kind of drifts out across the North Sea. People are breathing this stuff in and being changed by it, but they don't know it; they can't see it. So being up close. You, you know, going into a cathedral is like seeing the air ionizing. You know it's there. You see the cross. You see the icons. You hear the hymns. But but if you're say on a, you know an anti-racism march, it's not immediately obvious that you are in hock to Christian narratives and myths and stories and teachings. It's just that they've 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 become secularized, and the very concept of the secular, likewise, is an entirely Christian way of seeing the world. The the notion that there are things, there's something called religion, and that there's something called the secular, and that these are separate dimensions, is an entirely Christian, indeed, I would say, kind of post-Reformation way of seeing the world. Uh, and yet, it's become so influential, you know. And that 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 cloud of radioactivity drifting across the world, ideological, it has only affected people in Christian countries. It's affected people who aren't. So that's what's at stake at the moment in, say, India or Turkey, where both of which are secular republics um, in which religion is seen as something that has to be kept apart from the secular. But these are both massively, massively influenced by the imperial powers of the 19th and 20th century. So the British, very obviously, in the case of India, but, you know, the, Ataturk's desire to emulate Europe in, in, in Turkey. Um, the idea of, the, of, of there being something called religion that is separate from the secular is not natural. It's a culturally contingent idea that was spread by Europeans in the age of imperial expansion, and one that was bedded down, even as you know, formal empire was ending in the mid in the mid twentieth century, in frameworks like, you know, Declaration of Human Rights uh, for, for the United Nations, all that kind of stuff, um, and, and basically all that language of human rights, all the the apparatus of international law as set up by Western lawyers in the wake of the Second World War, is a, a Christianization of international affairs that now, as Western power recedes, is coming to seem more and more culturally contingent. The thing about, about Western power was that for, for maybe a couple of centuries, so from the French Revolution up to, say, I don't know, um, maybe, the, maybe the financial crash, I mean, maybe even now, COVID, um, it was possible to assume that um, uh, Ideas that patently derived from Christianity, Christian theology, Christian myth, Christian narratives um, could somehow be extrapolated from them and passed off as being universal. So in the French Revolution, you know, let's close down the church, let's turn Notre Dame into um, a shrine to, 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 to reason. But the, the, the Declaration of the Rights of, of Man and of the Citizen they're written out on tablets of stone, literal tablets of stone. I mean, the way in which this is a secularized equivalent of, of kind of Christian teaching couldn't be more clear. And, in, you know, ever since the French Revolution, there's been this kind of assumption that you can have uh, that, 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 that these ideas 
extrapolated from Christian doctrine can be passed off as being somehow universal, the proper inheritance of mankind, humankind. And that's not true. And that, that, that kind of contrick is being rumbled by people like Modi, like people like Erdogan. And, you know, it's it, particularly by the Chinese government, you know, the government of China, they're not interested in talk of human rights. And Western diplomats saying, you know, these human rights are universal. They're not universal. It's a specifically Christian idea, bred of, 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 of contingency. So, yeah, I, I guess just to counter that, I guess it's, it's pretty hard because obviously history is what it is. Um, but would you not see that perhaps there could be some convergent utility behind some of these ideas? And because we just don't know what, you know, uh, uh, an empire built on Confucianism versus Taoism or a Buddhist empire or a Shinto empire um, could look like that we it wouldn't that. have we resulted in some of these ideas? Yeah, we do, we do, because they existed. I mean, that's what China was. China is an empire, hundreds of empires. I mean, you know, a succession of empires. And we know what a Buddhist empire looks like because Ashoka had it. I mean, we know, we know, we know. What, that, that's the thing. Every empire has an ideological justification. The thing that's distinctive about European empires, it seems to me, is that those ideological justifications contain the seeds of their own ruin. So there is nothing quite as, as colonial as decolonization. The impetus to decolonize, to decolonize is a deeply, deeply Western one, bred of Christian assumptions, because the emblem of Christ on the cross, that's decolonization. It's decolonizing it. It's it's trans it's it's transmuting an emblem of Roman power, the power of the imperial elite to torture to death provincials who oppose the might of the metropole, or slaves who oppose the might of their owners, and turning it into an emblem of the opposite, into an emblem of the power of the powerlessness to defeat the powerful. It's the most radical act of decolonization in human history. This is um this is incredible and I think you've just touched on something there that I wanted to push into as well which is um I think from 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 what I can tell and um um, I, I think I, I think I would probably agree with you that the, a, a lot of the things that I, that I hold dear and close to my heart are based within a Christian substrate, right? And this substrate seems to be um, one that is able to be attacked by itself. It's almost like a snake eating its own tail. It's the it, and and that that's obviously worrying and concerning. So um, I guess my 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 question, Tom, um, is basically how do we um, begin to? Um, I mean, it's, it's I guess it's it's bizarre to ask a historian to look to the future but i think it's it's it is an important one and one that i think we're all kind of sitting with is as we look ahead as we look at the way the world's going and how christianity has given us the tools to almost um i don't know um deconstruct essentially um the way that we think and the way that we live and the way that we believe and hold these truths to be real um we can look and say okay well you might like and we all probably agree that you know that we all have value and we want human rights to be a thing but uh, china doesn't for instance as you said and china gets to a point where it's powerful enough to take over and and to wipe this out how do we how do we begin to look at holding the claims of um, a, a a a christian ideal like human rights and um propagating that 
forwards. It seems to me that it's 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 I don't it, know. It, yeah okay. <laughs> I don't know because because it seems to me that that um, in time uh, it will become more. I, I'm convinced of this that it will become more and more clear that human rights is a classic example. Uh, our assumption that human rights are self-evident that they are somehow things that exist. I, you know, I mean, they're no more real than angels. But people don't want to believe that. People want to think, that, yeah, yeah, they exist. So people believe in human rights in the way that people in the Middle Ages believed in angels. I mean, they, you know, you don't even question it. You just think, of course they are. They're just there. They just exist. And we're going to, you know, they're going to hugely influence the way we behave and, and structure our lives and, uh, you know, and everything. Um, but the more we come to have a kind of multipolar world where that assumption is just one of many, the harder then it becomes. And, and, it does seem to me that, you know, as I said at the beginning, that 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 to believe in human rights is to take a leap of faith. Uh, you know, you you've got, you know, they don't really exist. So what are you going to do? Um, behave as though they did exist? I mean, I guess that's the best answer I could say. But but I also think uh, that personally, I would like to see um, uh, a regrowth of Christianity in the West, because I think that ultimately, um, Christianity provides the nutrients from which these these blooms have sprung. That's really interesting. Uh, my a thought that pops into my head, and obviously I, I really want your really want your opinion on this, is um, if you look at the um, I don't know, I, I think it's roughly around the sixth century. Please forgive me if I'm if I'm wrong in that, but um, basically we see within Islam a very strong philosophical school um, where they're looking at things like the Kalam cosmological argument, and they're kind of um, beginning to kind of um, yeah engage these sort of philosophical ideas. And then later on, Christianity kind of takes these things on itself and kind of moves it forwards. Would you would you say it's necessarily a a, a Christian? position that you want to see propagated forwards would you say it's more of a kind of um philosophical understanding where things are held in tension and 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 held with this realization that we're talking about that these are myths which are breakable and if these breakable myths get smashed we have a lot of work to get ourselves back to a position where we're able to move forwards like is, is it christianity or is it a, a a mindset that fits within religion well i think religion is a christian myth i think the idea that something called religion is is a, is a christian myth and i think that if you describe you know you describe islam or, or hinduism or judaism as religions you're christianizing them and indeed the, the the very word judaism and hinduism are coined by christians um so that's what i mean it's it's almost impossible to escape uh from a christian way of seeing it and and the criticisms of christianity are themselves christian the attempt to escape christianity leads you to a kind of Christian position. It's, it's, it's impossible to escape, I think. Um, having said that, uh, I, I mean, I think the, the opposite of, of, um, of Christian belief isn't disbelief. I think disbelief is a form of Christian belief because you're still defined by what you don't believe in. You're still engaged with it. The opposite of Christian belief is disinterest, is not knowing anything about it, is not caring about it, is simply not even engaging with it. Uh, is not being familiar with the biblical stories or anything. Um, and, you know, it, the, the guy who's shadowing this, of course, is is Nietzsche. Um, and Nietzsche is saying God is dead, but his corpse is in the cave and it's continuing to cast shadows. And it will cast shadows for many, many centuries because God's corpse is absolutely massive. Um, I think that's that is true. 
uh, you know, we will, even if, if all Bibles got eliminated, if all churches got demolished, if, if, if we forgot completely about uh, everything to do with Christianity, it, its imprint would still be there in the language that we speak, in the laws that we have, in the, the cultural assumptions that we, we bring to our understanding of the world. It would still be there. But obviously, it, it, it will mutate and change and evolve and, 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 and move on. And I think that, um, you know, we can, we can see how that, I mean, I mean, I think that, that a lot of um, what's happening, say, with, with what people call culture wars, is it's a kind of sublimated theology. It's, it's an attempt to say Black Lives Matter with the kind of, you know, when, when Martin Luther King knelt, took the knee, it, he, he was doing so because in a long line of Baptists who likewise had done it before God. And it was a kind of acknowledgement that all human beings are equal before God. So all should kneel. That's not quite the signification that it has now when people, you know, people in football matches take the knee. It's 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 subtly different. Um, it's it's kind of American. I mean, it's it's a kind of homage to American culture almost. Um, so and to that extent, it seems to me diminished in comparison with what with what uh, Martin Luther King, for instance, was doing. Um, and I think that that an awful lot of the of the culture wars at the moment is a kind of an attempt to find a symbolic language that 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 will that will satisfy the 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 intensity of people's feelings about this so the chucking you know pulling down statues taking the knee whatever these are these are venerable christian things to do but because they're not being done in overtly christian terms the meaning is much more slippery much harder to, to control and therefore in a sense much more contested um, so I think that's 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 one way I think that the future will go is that I think that Christian actions, symbols, narratives will continue to be a part of our culture, but they will be more contested, and people will will kind of people continue to do things without entirely understanding why they're doing them. Um, I think also that um, of course Nietzsche's key argument was that you can't have ultimately in the long run, Christian beliefs, uh, Christian um, uh, values without the Christian God. Um, and, you know, he, he basically kind of predicts fascism. He, sa he says that, that, you know, there will be a great reckoning, everything will change, the world will be drowned in blood. And in a sense, the experience of fascism has served as a kind of prophylactic against that. Um, in a sense, we no longer need Christianity because we have Hitler. People before the Second World War would ask, you know, what would Jesus do and do it? And now we ask, what would Hitler do? And we do the opposite. Um, and I think that, that in a sense, one of the reasons why church attendance in the West fell off a cliff in the 60s is that um, basically the, the Second World War and, and, and the story of fascism provided a more kind of compelling narrative. Hitler is a much more compelling figure of evil than the devil. Um, you know, the Auschwitz is a much more terrifying image of hell than you know anything that Dante or Milton have come up with um, but I think the power of that is fading and I think that um, you know if you you know if you if you if you if you, you don't believe that human beings are created equally in the image of God if you don't believe that they have an inherent dignity then you know why <laughs> Why, why treat the poor or, you know, foreigners or whatever with, with any respect at all? You know, just trample them down. You know, that's what the Romans did. 
And of course, it's what the Nazis did. Um, and so I, I, I would see the fading of Christianity as leading to a kind of emphasis on, you know, um, pull up the drawbridge, um, trample down the poor. You know, why not? That's that's human nature. Um, of course, why, let's do that. Um, and I think you can also see in certain ways um, that there are ideologies within the West at the moment that are very, really are post-Christian. One of them would be transhumanism, very popular in Silicon Valley in California. The idea that it, it is possible to transcend what they charmingly call meat, you know, the human body, the body of homo sapiens that, that, that um, you know, you can become, you know, Nietzsche's Superman, really. Uh, and if you're doing that, then you are, again, you're slipping the bonds of your common humanity. You're, 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 you're absolutely rejecting the idea that all human beings are created equally. Uh, you know, you're transcending that. And the other one, which was, um, I, I think, uh, uh, on a, a growing part of, of the, the kind of the radical fringe of the green movement is to cast humans as the virus. I mean, that was a, a kind of, a, a, a trope that was floating around when, when coronavirus first hit, that humans are the virus, that the natural world cannot survive us, that we are, we, you know, we are not good. We're not created in the image of a benign creator, that in fact we are a, a pestilence, that we are destroying everything that is good on this planet, that we are wiping animals out, that we are polluting the oceans, that we are destroying the climate, and that the sooner we as a species go, the better it is for for the future of the planet. And that again is a radically, radically unchristian ideology. Um, so I think that all of that, I, I I think you can see all those trends happening as as the hold of of doctrinal Christianity fades, and indeed doctrinal kind of atheism as well. Some really f fascinating points you've made there, Tom. Um, I'm aware we're running out of time. So I guess, um, first of all, um, absolutely. Uh, I'm really excited to be reading Dominion. I know that Sam uh, absolutely loved reading it uh, himself. So I'm really keen to get a copy of that. Um, if people are interested in following your work um, on things like social media, what would be the best people uh, way for people to do that? I'm really only active on Twitter where I'm at Holland underscore Tom. Um, I, I, I take far, it takes up far too much of my time as it is. I don't think I can cope with it with any other social media platforms. And also That's I have a, a, a twice weekly podcast. Um, the rest is history where, um, uh, actually the most recent one, the most recent episode was on culture wars. So some of the themes that I've been discussing today um, was were aired on that. And we've got one coming up on the French Revolution, where again, I'm sure some of these ideas will be debated. <laughs> um, so, but it's not all about Christianity. Um, I hate this bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's grand. Well, I, I personally have found this really um, exciting and, and challenging uh, conversation. It's been really intriguing listening to you and uh, really want to thank you for coming onto the podcast. Thanks, Tom. It's been great. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To leave any comments or thoughts, you can head over to YouTube. And to follow us on social media, or to see where else we are online, hit the link in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this dream a reality. I'll catch you here at the same time next week. Enjoy the journey.